Those were some studly guys on that screen. Still studly, I might, if I must say so. Uh, also, I did forget to um, give a good big announcement. We have a newcomer with us today, Drew. Uh, he is, uh, yeah, he's now with us out in the world, big wide world. Uh, we're really happy to have Drew here with us today. Uh, I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. This will be our next to last uh, sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. So we will be in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. I'm a pretty competitive person. Uh, I'm, In fact, I'm the kind of guy uh, who can ruin a perfectly good family outing to the bowling alley because I'm just so competitive. Uh, but you name it, Mario Kart, Uno, Ping Pong, I'm competitive. And Mallory's competitive too, uh, so this is really great because we love to play games together, but even when we're on the same team, we try to compete with each other, like, like I, I can't believe you're stronger than me and all this kind of stuff. So it's really fun, and we love to play board games. We love to play board games. Now, a few years ago, there was one board game in particular that we would play with some friends called Resistance. Uh, and resistance is about, you're, you're this team of soldiers who go on missions uh, to resist this evil authoritarian empire. So you go on these missions, and, you, and if you succeed on these missions, and you get enough successes, you win the game, and the, you destroy the empire, I guess. But the thing about it is, on each mission, there's a spy. You know that there are spies on your team, but you don't know who the spies are. And so, uh, you know, you go on these missions, and when a mission gets sabotaged, you spend time debating on who you think the spies might be. You know, well, this person did this, and this person had this look, and, and this kind of thing. And the problem with these debates in this game is they turned into shouting matches very quickly. There were many times when we were just trying to yell louder than the next person to say, this, this person's a spy, I know there's a spy. And it got, I mean, it got so intense that we were over at some friends' houses and, you know, you're a married couple, right? And if one of you is a spy, you're, you're lying to your spouse. Uh, and so one couple, this wife, she got so upset at her husband, they went into this kitchen and like for like five minutes, like the rest of us are kind of sitting on this couch and we can hear them arguing. And they're like whisper fighting, and so we're like, really, like, uh, what do we do in this situation? It got really intense uh, in th- this game. Uh, so when we started Resistance, it was kind of easy to figure out who the spies were because nobody was good at lying. The problem was that we got really good at lying. Really good at lying. Mallory became the best at lying, actually. Uh, and it became harder and harder to tell who was a spy and who was on your side. It became harder and harder to tell friend from foe. It is my belief that one of the greatest missing components of the church in America today is the ability to discern. The ability to tell friend from foe, right from wrong, good from bad, truth from untruth. Everybody thinks that they practice discernment, but the reality is we're born in sin and sin devastates 
our ability to practice true spiritual discernment. And even when we are saved, we don't automatically download all this information to be able to discern. This discernment, even when you're saved, is learned and it's cultivated. Discernment is a critical part of the Christian life. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament, we're told things like in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 5.10 says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So in all of these places, in all of these scriptures, the assumption is that these Christians have to work to find out what is truly pleasing to God. It's not something that we have automatically. So don't automatically assume that you know this. In fact, one indicator that you practice discernment well is that you don't assume you can discern well. You assume the opposite. You assume you can't discern well, and so you depend on God's grace to help you. That's a good indicator that you're practicing discernment correctly. So discernment's not only like a really critical part of the Christian life, but it is badly needed today. I like to say that we live in a confused and a confusing world. The world is both confused and a confusing place to live, but the good news is that God wants his people to practice discernment, and he tells us how. So let's turn in our Bibles and look at how to practice true spiritual discernment. Chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dog what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. As I've emphasized throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' focus is on a greater righteousness. It's a righteousness that's both perfect and and whole, a a wholesome righteousness. So uh, first, Jesus applies this greater righteousness to to piety, to religious duty, so giving and praying and fasting. And then last week, we saw Jesus applies this greater righteousness to our possessions. Now, Jesus turns and he applies this greater righteousness 
to people, our relation to other people. And in relation to people, we must practice discernment. So first, discernment requires humble reflection. Discernment requires humble reflection. This, again, like much of the Sermon on the Mount, is one of the most quoted verses in Scripture. Judge not that you be not judged. This is a favorite of non-Christians and, and Christians alike. And it's always, always used as a defense for sin. You can't judge me, Jesus says. Judge not. And you're judging me. You can't judge me. You don't know me. Nobody's perfect. But Jesus here, the, what we need to realize, Jesus isn't forbidding judging. He's forbidding condemning. In fact, a better way to use this in English would be to say, do not judge unfairly. Do not judge unfairly. The reason I, I bring this out is because in our day, judge almost always has a negative connotation. When we think judge, we automatically think like the condemning, self-righteous kind of judging. Even when we think of a judge, we think of someone who meets out punishments for wrongdoing. But in Scripture, and, and even in older uses of English, to judge had, had a wider range of meaning, and it, it meant to discern or to uh, perceive rightly. It meant to have to judge, to have the ability to come to a right decision. So even though a judge today meets out punishments, they also uphold justice. They come to a right decision regarding justice. So when Scripture talks about judging in both the Old Testament and New Testament, it's, it's usually about being able to see or perceive a situation rightly. That's why Solomon is famous as, as a judge, right? He was famous for his wisdom to be able to judge a situation rightly. So Jesus' point is not that we avoid making moral evaluations, but to avoid evaluating or judging unfairly. In other words, if we are going to discern rightly, we cannot judge unfairly. If we are to discern rightly, we cannot judge unfairly. And this requires humble reflection. Before we make any kind of judgment at all, we use this humble reflection. And, and Jesus, He actually uses humor to make this point. He says in verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That's a funny picture. I mean, if you are into woodworking at all, you know how irritating it is to get you know, sawdust in your eye. So when, you know, you're, if you're in a wood shop with someone and, you know, you're, someone else gets sawdust in your eye, you go over there and like, okay, I see some sawdust, let me get it out. And they look at you, you have a plank coming out of your face. Like, that's a funny, that's a funny picture. And, and the reason it's humorous, the reason it's funny is because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that someone with a log coming out of their face would try to take a little piece of sawdust out of somebody's eye. When we are making a moral judgment, the first part of discernment is realizing the greater need relies, lies in us first. 
in making a moral judgment about someone or about something, the greater need lies with ourselves first. I think one reason Jesus uses a log is because the sin in our hearts is always greater than we realize. So that's why Jesus says in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take out the log Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So part of practicing true spiritual discernment is turning the tables on us first. Turning the mirror on us. And, and reflecting on ourselves honesty, honestly and humbly. And, and the reason that this requires humility because this is part of what it means to die to ourselves. It takes humility because when we do this, it makes us part of the blame. Usually when we make moral evaluation, we want to blame the other person. The other person is at fault for this. But when we do humble reflection, we become just as much part of the blame. It shows us that we are never free from sin and that the sin in our hearts is just as ugly as what we see in others. Sometimes more ugly. Right? Just look at chap- back at chapter 5, verses 17 to 48. You can't condemn a murderer because you have murder in your heart. You can't self-righteously condemn someone who murders because guess what? That's in your heart too. One of my favorite bands saying, they, they put this in one of their songs, it's a simple lyric, but I think it's profound. He says, I'm just as much a problem as the man behind bars. He did with his business what I do in my heart. The effect of this kind of humble reflection where we turn the mirror on us, where we turn the tables on us, is that it produces grace. It produces grace. It makes you realize, except for the grace of God, there go I. The reason we can't self-righteously condemn someone who murders is because if it weren't for the grace of God, we would be murderers. It helps us realize that we've been given way more grace than we deserve, and it makes us much more willing to give grace to those who don't deserve it. And one of the best practices that you can adopt is to take like someone's offense or insult uh, against you or, or something that makes you angry and you, you think about that in relation to God because that's how God feels exactly about your sin, only infinitely more so, and He still covers you with grace. So Donald Hanger said, the obvious implication is that an awareness of one's own faults will make one more charitable in their judgment of others. So if we are going to make a moral evaluation, if we are going to make a proper judgment to discern a person or situation rightly, when we do this, it completely transforms our tone. What we say and how we say it, whether we say it, the words we choose, it it changes it completely. But beware 
if you do not do this. A few nights ago, we were reading Willa, Frog and Toad. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Frog and Toad. Some of my favorite bedtime stories. Uh, and, and if you don't know, Frog and Toad are just, they're a frog and a toad, and they're best friends, and they just do stuff together. But in one, Toad has a dream, and he's this really magnificent performer. And there's one person in the audience, and it's his best friend, Frog. So Toad is performing all the, and doing all these great acts, but the whole time that he's performing, Frog shrinks, and he becomes smaller, and he's smaller. And he shrinks in comparison to Toad's greatness. If you never honestly evaluate yourself or take the time to self-reflect, you will become greater and greater in your own eyes. The mark of a Pharisee is that they are always harder on others than they are on themselves. Be afraid if you become the standard of righteousness. It's usually the sins that frustrate us the most, that anger us the most, that are somewhere in our hearts. Be afraid if you find it difficult to see your own faults and sins, but more frequently and more easily find them in others. Be afraid. True spiritual discernment requires humble reflection. I always have a hard time empathizing with a lot of TV characters, especially if they're like, if, especially if they make like bad decisions one after another. So we were watching one TV show where this daughter gets kidnapped, uh, and uh, and it's like she just makes one bad decision after another to to the point where I'm just like, you deserve to get kidnapped. You know, you you deserve all this bad stuff that happens to you. But but one thing when you watch like an action show or a scary uh, scary movie or something like that is there's always this one character that um, is, like, paralyzed by, like, their fear. Like, they see this danger coming, and they're just, you know, they're just stuck there until they're killed. You know, they're just like, oh, I can't do anything. So what we have to do is be careful that this humble reflection that we do doesn't paralyze us like this TV show character, doesn't paralyze us into doing nothing. Because the reality is we have to make moral evaluations. Christianity is all but useless if we don't make moral evaluations. So, secondly, discernment requires thoughtful application. If verses 1 to 5 are a warning against judgmental discrimination, this verse, verse 6, is a particularly a warning about being undiscriminating. Jesus says in verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Dogs and pigs, in Jewish thought, uh, represent the most filthy and detestable. So dogs, right, they're not seen as the cute man's best friend kind of companions that they are today. Dogs were often seen and used as imagery in the Old Testament to depict someone who is senseless and foolish. So Proverbs 26 compares a dog returning to its vomit as a fool repeating his folly. 
And, and pigs are like the epitome of, of uncleanness and they're largely avoided by Jews. Think of the uh, prodigal son. He ends up in the pigsty. He's, he's, there's no lower that he can go because he's with pigs. So what Jesus is saying here is that we must be careful not to give what is holy and precious to the holy despicable. We have examples of this in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, later in Matthew chapter 15, tells his disciples about the Pharisees, leave them. They are blind guides. Uh, in Acts 18.5, 18, Paul abandons his ministry to the Jews in Corinth because they are so antagonistic and um, uh, abusive. Uh, Paul warns Titus that you warn a divisive person once and then twice, and then after that have nothing more to do with them. So what all of this means is that Jesus authorizes his people to make moral evaluations with spiritual discernment. He authorizes it. He permisses. He requires his people to make moral evaluations. In fact, the whole rest of this chapter in chapter 7 is all about recognizing good and bad fruit. And what's crazy is in Matthew 18, not only does God want his people to recognize good and bad, but he gives his church the authority to pronounce whether someone is in the kingdom based on that fruit. So we cannot shirk away from this responsibility. D.A. Carson said, Jesus is commanding his disciples not to share the richest parts of spiritual truth with persons who are persistently vicious, irresponsible, and unappreciative. Just as the pearls were unappreciated by the savage animals, but only enraged them and made them dangerous, so also many of the riches of God's revelation are unappreciated, unappreciated by many people. And painful as it is to see it, these rich truths may only serve to enrage them. So what this requires is patient, reflective, thoughtful application. Wisdom in the Bible, I like to compare it to a semi-aquatic animal. Right? A semi-aquatic animal can live on both land and water, and it does something different depending on where you find it. And so uh, wisdom does... The same thing, depending on where you find it in scripture, it, scripture, it's a little different. And one of the functions of wisdom in scripture is the ability to name and identify and recognize realities. So Adam exercised this kind of wisdom when he names the animals. Proverbs is all about a father trying to teach his son how to properly recognize and name good and bad, wise and so Christians are called to practice spiritual discernment by being able to identify good and bad, righteous and unrighteous. We're called to this. We're called to identify it and recognize it and name it. An uncritical, undiscerning Christian that fought, fails to evaluate properly what they hear and where they hear it from and what they say and how they say it, what they see and where they see it is a deceived Christian. 
to be discerning and evaluative means to take every thought and make it captive to obey Christ. We are not born with this ability and we're not born again knowing how to do it. It is a lifetime of filtering everything through Scripture to bring it into obedience to the Lordship of Christ. That's what it means to practice discernment. Is this good? Is this true? Is this biblical? Is this spiritual? Filtering it through Scripture. And remember, it's only after humble reflection that we're prepared to do this, to make these kinds of moral evaluations and judgments. What this means is, we don't approach every situation the same. What's not clear is when we stop giving the pearls away. But it changes our heart attitudes, whatever situation it is. Our preeminent example in this is Jesus. Because guess what? Jesus can both denounce a city and then weep over it. Jesus can rebuke a doubter, but be patient with a doubting Thomas. Jesus can uh, welcome large crowds with compassion and dismiss large crowds because of their unbelief. This is exactly why true spiritual discernment requires thoughtful application. I hope at this point you're starting to recognize how difficult practicing discernment can be. It's not easy. In fact, it's really easy to get it wrong. I've recently taken an interest in fly fishing. And the worst, most humbling thing in fly fishing, maybe besides falling in the water, which I did, is getting your line in a knot because you can end up spending more time untangling your knot than you can fishing. And what's more humbling is when you don't have the equipment or the know-how to untangle a knot and then retie your fly to it. And so because my knots can be so bad and I don't know how to tie a new fly, I give up and I have to ask Clay for help. This discernment is difficult. Oftentimes the situations we're required to exercise discernment in are tangled up like a knot. And often we don't have the know-how, so we ask for help. Thirdly, discernment requires faithful supplication. Discernment requires faithful supplication. From the mouth of the Lord Himself come words so sure there are where we can lay our heads at night. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What words of comfort, right? Church, let's live and pray as if this is true. As if Jesus himself spoke these words. Because he did. He continues. Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, 
will give him a serpent. If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So much of the Sermon on the Mount reminds me of Proverbs. And here I'm reminded of of Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 says, Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? Wisdom says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. And what is Proverbs but a father giving good gifts to his children? Jesus is telling us that the father doesn't hide wisdom or goodness from his children. He doesn't hold back wisdom or goodness from us. The father of heaven and earth wants to give his children discernment and wisdom and goodness. But we have to seek. Jesus doesn't tell us when you seek, immediately you will find. He doesn't tell us the duration of the seeking, but we seek. And when we seek, we will find. This passage is so much like James chapter 1. James starts off his epistle by saying, what consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. But then immediately says after this, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given him. The connection between suffering well and wisdom is that we need wisdom to suffer well and God generously provides wisdom. The connection is the same here. We need wisdom to discern well and God generously gives wisdom. But this passage is not only the grounds by which we seek God's wisdom. It's, it's a promise. It's a guarantee. When we seek wisdom, we, we seek it based on the fact that our Father said it and that He meant it through the words of His Son. So it's the grounds by which we seek wisdom, but it's also the place where we rest in His goodness. We're not just seeking wisdom to discern well. When we See God's wisdom and His goodness. We're resting in His over-the-top goodness to us so that we can turn and extend that same goodness to others. It's when you remind yourself in humble reflection of God's grace and His goodness to you that you can then mirror the character of this God to others whether they deserve it or not. Here's the thing about praying. We're not praying just for ourselves. We're praying for the other. It's hard to condemn someone self-righteously when you're praying for their good. Discernment requires this kind of faithful supplication. How many of these verses are Easily among the top ten quoted in all of Scripture, much less verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. 
That's the thing about grace. When we give grace to others, they don't deserve it. And neither do we. And so we treat others with the same level of patience and kindness and grace that we would want for our, ourselves. Condemnation offers no path to redemption. But if it were us, we would want redemption, wouldn't we? We would want a path to redemption. Ultimately, we root this truth in the reality that God in Christ did not and does not treat us the way we deserve. Before I came to Christ, I did everything in my sinful power to keep God from saving me. I did everything that I could to give Him reasons to judge me and not to save me. And even after I'm saved, I give Him reasons to abandon me and to give up on me and to judge me. But He doesn't treat me at all the way I deserve. Because God treated Christ the way you deserve to be treated and He now treats you the way Jesus deserves to be treated. That's the reality that we root all of this in. Your anger, your gossip, your unbelief, your doubting, your waywardness, your lust, your condemnation, your self-righteousness, your pride, your greediness. God treated the perfect, His perfect Son the way your sins deserve to be treated on the cross. And every millisecond of every day of your life, He treats you with the profound grace and love that only Jesus Christ can merit for you. Even when He disciplines us, it's not out of anger. It's out of deep divine love for his child there is no true discernment without profound experience of these truths so the question for you is is this grace precious to you is this grace precious to you let's be a people who practice true spiritual discernment a people who are quicker to judge ourselves than we are others, but who are not afraid to make accurate, faithful, humble evaluations, moral evaluations. Remember, Christ calls us to be salt and light. And that requires us to call out corruption and sin in the world. But we do so as people who are transformed by this grace. So let's be people of discernment who bask in grace. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, the great profound truth of your gospel is that you were treated how we so infinitely deserve to be treated. Every ounce of the wrath of God was poured out on you for our guilt, for our blame, for our sin, for our foolishness. Though you never sin, though you never were wayward, though you were always faithful, you were crushed under the weight of our sin. So now in you, God our Father treats us 
the way that you eternally deserve to be treated. That's profound grace. That's profound love. And we praise you as the Lord of heaven and earth who has entrusted us with the greatest reality of the universe. It's a pearl. It is precious. It is holy. Help us to handle it well. Help us to handle your gospel in wisdom and in discernment. We ask this of you based on your promise that those who seek find, that those who knock, the door will be open, and that those who ask will receive from your gracious hand. And it's in your name that we pray.